Mythos Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners, and welcome to episode 7 of the season number 10 of the Thoth Herbis podcast. My name is Rudolf, today is October the 8th, 2023, and I'm very happy to welcome you back here on the podcast to have yet another exciting episode with the title Occult Publishing. Yes, um, this time we are going to talk to Jan Graham, who is the acquisition editor of uh, one of the biggest um, publishing houses in the field of the occult, in Inner Traditions. And we will speak about all the all, all the insight that he can give us, and but also into his personal view on many things. Uh, interesting talk, I believe, we have here here today. Uh, again, some other variation of our beloved subject, the Western esoteric tradition. And um, we'll get some, yes, some deep insight into that field of occult publishing. Right, it's great to have you back. And for those of you who are here for the first time, welcome on the Thos Hermes podcast. For all of you who are here, I, as always, want to point out the website of our show here, thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And what can you do on that, pod, on that website? On that website, you can go and, well, send me, for example, a message, a voicemail, right on the first page, or on each page, actually, on the right side, you have that little that little. A button where you can open a window which will send me a voicemail that you record free of course you can also send me a classical feedback in another way which uh, there's a contact form of course you can do that also on facebook or twitter if you prefer but most important of all of course you can get access there to all the episodes 150 three are online now i believe this is 154th that is now online and uh, well this is quite an, a big big number of interesting interviews and talks on many many different subjects out of the western esoteric tradition and of course also there is that famous button you know the patreon button the patreon button that brings you to my patreon page where you can become a patron of this show starting with one dollar per episode and really i would very very much appreciate thanks to those of you who are already patrons and there are also new ones again this week two new ones this week thank you for that and yet yes we have somebody completely new we have the first ever adept level patron and as an adept level patron of course 
This patron has the right to be mentioned in each intro of the show as long as he is a patron member. And I really would like to thank Imbolts, the International School for Western Magic, for having become an adept Patreon member and supporting the show. Imbolts is a really highly interesting school. You should go and uh, go and look on their website. Um, it's based in the south of Germany, but it is working internationally. You can all have uh, classes with them. And there is, as an adept member, also a button and a link button on the homepage of our show. Go there, Imbolts, and have a look at this International School for Western Magic. It is really worth it. Have a look there. Right, and once again, thank you for becoming a patron. You can also buy me a coffee. <laughs> yes, there is also that buy me a coffee button now. There since a few weeks. So if you prefer that to Patreon, I'm happy to drink the coffee that you paid me for. And if you prefer just making a donation, I'll be just as happy to. Thank you so much for those who have supported so far, who still support the show and who will in the future support. I hope there will be many more of you. We need it to maintain this show at the level you're used to. As always, I also present music, of course, and that's also the case in this show. And I'm happy that once again this week we have music that was brought to me by one of our listeners. And um, it is not his own music, but it's the music he he likes and the music that he knows the author of. And um, so I'm happy to present you here today, Bernd Dominiak. He's not the guy who sent me the music, but he's a percussionist, quite an extraordinary percussionist, but more than a drummer. You know, he's really making music. He's really producing music in a very, very fine, refined way. Uh, I really love what he does. He is a musician who uses the drum set and percussion as a form of expression. So enjoy three pieces here today by Bernd Dominiak, as you can say by the name. Uh, Bernd is German, and so therefore the titles of his pieces are also in German. I'll do my best to translate them. It's easy with the first two we play. The third one, I'm not 100% sure how to translate that. I will try once we're there, but the first piece is called in German Aufstehen, meaning get up. To get up in the morning is Aufstehen, or stand up if you prefer is also a possible translation. Either you can choose and see what you think fits best to that piece we're going to hear now. A percussion, drummer percussion piece uh, performed and of course also produced by Bernd Dominiak, and it's called Aufstehen and if you want to see Bernd at work, there is an 11-minute piece, 11-minute drummer piece, quite extraordinary, on YouTube. And I will put the link to that also in the show notes, in the music part. We're not going to play that 11-minute piece here today. That would be too long for the show. But um, I absolutely want you to see also that piece in YouTube. So here and now it is Aufstehen. Uh, Percussion piece by Bernd Dominiak. Enjoy. <laughs>
Bernd Dominiak performing Aufstehen, meaning get up, stand up, but it's quite an extraordinary piece that he produces here. And you will hear two more later in this show. You are going to enjoy those as well. Right, well, let's now go and talk to Jan Graham. We had Jan here on the show, uh, I think it was a bit over a year ago, and back then he was speaking to us in his capacity as translator, which, and he's an author, he's a translator, he does several different things, um, but he was here then because he had translated that wonderful work on the Bavarian Illuminati. Uh, and uh, so we're going to talk to him here today and 
about occult publishing, not just about his position in, in the traditions, uh, but also about occult publishing in general, his view on it, what has changed over the last years, what does he think where occult publishing is going, what does it mean to be an occult publisher? Jan himself, he's an artist, a writer, translator, specializing in works on surrealism, the occult and folklore. And as this, this uh, uh, speciality of surrealism, of course, has also a lot to do with esotericism and occultism, um, you should also go on the webpage, on the show notes, and get the list of books that he recommended about that relationship between surrealism and uh, the world of the occult. I think that's a link that we all know about, but it's somehow underestimated. Not, not really many people go and have a look um, what that really means. What does surrealism and occult have in common? Or what are their, why are so many surrealist um, painters, artists also involved in the occult? I think that's a really interesting topic and that little book list will help you and it has helped me to understand that link quite a bit. So I also thank um, Jan for that. Jan lives in Vermont in the United States and he has been with Inner Traditions for 27 years so he really know his, knows his way around and well I think we should just go there now and without further ado meet Jan Graham and talk about Occult Publishing. Here comes the interview. It's my big pleasure today on the Thos Hermes podcast to welcome back Jan Graham because welcome back. We had him here. I think, Jan, it was about a year ago. Could that be? Could that be it? A bit over a year that we were talking. I think here. a little over a year ago. A little ago. over a year, yes, that we were talking here about the Bavarian Illuminati and the great job you did on translating, actually, back then, this huge work on the Bavarian Illuminati. And um, I remember very well our talk then. It, it was great. And of course, you are here today in the kind of a in different capacity because um, I don't know how, how if you would call that your day job or one of your jobs or whatever you you will tell us more about that is also to be acquisition editor at Inner Traditions and occult publishing is something that not only fascinates me but of course in the work in the podcast here I talk to a lot of authors I talk to also publishers and um it seems that that world has developed over the last 10, 15 years in spite of the internet or maybe because of the internet um, also in a, in a dramatic way. So that's our subject here today. And I think it's it's about time that after 153 episodes, we speak about occult publishing in particular. So welcome, welcome back. And it's great to have you. Uh, it's great to be back. Uh, I look forward to speaking with you on this uh, topic. Yeah, the occult publishing uh, business is flourishing right now, from what I can see. I mean, just from our own <clears throat> mm -hmm. perspective here in the traditions, our sales get grow every year. There seems to be more and more interest in the subject matter. Uh, I believe that the same can be said with some of the other occult publishers that I know. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot, a lot that 
is being opened up now. It's it's you can't really call it an occult revival, but it might be getting a more extensive or profound understanding of the occult. People are digging deeper. You know, people that uh, were introduced to it. I mean, for years there was there was uh, introductory books galore. Mm-hmm. to the occult, to different spiritual traditions. But now there, there's more books for advanced people. People are looking to push their practice beyond, you know, what they got when they bought a rune book or an introduction to magic or not the Evil introduction to magic, but your general, uh, you know, love magic book where you use uh, sybaritic strawberry Frosting for cupcakes for the object of your uh, your lust (laughs) desire. Yeah, there's a there's a lot more uh, serious and interesting material available now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting because people seem to go deeper inside. That that that's what it hints to. Actually, you said occult revival. John Michael Greer in an interview, not the one we did last week here, but uh, a few months back, he he said that this was the third occult revival after the 1880s, basically, then the 1960s, basically. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and now he feels very much uh, like that. And what you say hints also a bit to that. But before we go in detail into those questions, um, we have spoken about your background, about uh, about you as an author and translator last time when we spoke. But how does somebody like you get into occult publishing? Was it coincidence? Did you choose it, or and if so, what what happened? Why did you Why did you want to go that along that path? Well, it wasn't something that I, you know, had put out there as some as part of my life path that. You know, it was a, a goal. It kind of uh, developed. I'd been working as a uh, at a bookstore. I'd been translating mostly surrealist material, and you know, surrealism is a really excellent gateway into the occult because it yeah. permeates it, and it permeated it thoroughly, much more so than the impression that. Uh, many art historians give of it, where they look at it as a sign of uh, the decline of surrealism after World War II. They had less influence in the real world, so they were clinging to the occult. You know, the 1947 exhibition with the altars and all. But right from the very beginning, uh, you can see not just Max Ernst, identification with Agrippa, things like that. But it's, it's, it's throughout. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was my own interest in surrealism that opened me up, not just to the occult, but also to indigenous mm-hmm. uh, philosophies, traditions. In fact, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the view that most people have of surrealism is, is, is based on the view of outsiders. So you have an exoteric understanding of it but the esoteric understanding of it is quite different right and you know there's a lot of uh things that would come as a great surprise to many people and because it's also an exoteric thing people have assumed that say for example the role of uh, women artists in surrealism Mm 
-hmm. They're just now getting a lot of exposure. And the male surrealists are being blamed. But it's actually the art world that determined which of the artists in the surrealist movement they would promote and which they would just leave in the shadows. And sure. yeah. it had nothing to do with this. If you, the only reason those uh, women are known is that they were uh, complete members of the group. They were members of all, they were exposing in all their exhibitions and so on. So it, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's always an interesting dichotomy of the insider and the outsider view. Right. And once you reach the insider view, it's not always something that outsiders are capable of understanding, say, as in alchemy. Uh, modern alchemists say, you can see this thing, but it's something that will remain impenetrable except to a fellow initiate. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. Um, well, and of course, maybe we can try in this, in this talk here today to, to give a bit as much as it is possible, an insider view into the publishing world, because I, th I think they're the same, of course, applies that you yeah. that you have that outside of you as a client, as, as somebody who is interested, but the world from the inside, the world you practice is very different, I'm sure, um, and, or has different uh, needs also and different and different expressions. Um, and then where you where you from the bookstore where you kind of pushed into a, a, a publishing house or, or how, how did that happen? Well, I uh, translated a book by Alain Danielou for an Traditions before I worked here. And uh, the uh, editor was really happy with the translation. And I was asked if I would consider working here as an editor. Right. And, uh, I said, why not? It seemed like a interesting development, sure. uh, evolution, uh, evolutionary step. And when I got here, I somehow fell into the crafting of a acquisition editor's role as it wasn't really something that one individual was doing, but something that different editors would kind of uh, try to throw together in between right. projects, right. but, uh, you know, I just brought more focus and concentration to the role. Mm -hmm. And then because of my own tastes and inclinations and, you know, extensive reading, of, you know, I started bringing in books that uh, I felt were unfairly overlooked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... You know, one of the things that I've done is bring in a lot of translations. The, you know, the French occult world, uh, the, yeah. the occult revival in Paris. I mean, there's a lot of major works from there that Certainly. until recently have not been available in English. Mm -hmm. uh, Shasha, Sasha Chetau mm -hmm. did a great translation of Sar Peladan's work and yeah. uh, mm -hmm. she did a, you know, a magisterial study of him and that's yeah. one of her passions and, you know, we're starting to see more stuff like that but Papus, uh, all of these different people that were part of that were sort of only known in the English-speaking world as the bit players for the Abyssonier story. Yeah. You know, when yeah. he... Yeah. Followed uh, Emmett Calvi into Paris with his documents and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it's, 
giving and, carte and blanche. And also the, the Italian world, it's, the same is true probably for, for and I'm not talking about Ella only, it's really, it's really the... Oh, there's plenty of others. Yeah, we've yeah. we've got a book uh, on Marco Daffy that's mm-hmm. scheduled soon. We've been doing Kremerts. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a gold mine, really. Absolutely. We yeah, had it's David important Pantano, stuff. Of course, who was very much involved in that on the show twice yes. already. Here about that yeah. subject. Yeah. So yeah, he's been he's been great. Yeah, um, uh, but that that's something that of course is a very keen interest of me personally here but because I'm broadcasting from Europe even though I keep saying I have 85% of my audience in North America which is an interesting thing also but, yeah um, of course one of the reasons why I started this podcast five or six years ago six years ago now um, was that I wanted to refocus also on stuff that came over from Europe into the rest of the world. And what you just said, of course, then we speak about the English world, and so that's fine. But we have the German world, yes, but we have the Italian, we have the French and and others. And they have been so far a bit overlooked by the English uh, translators or market or whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. it. And you have been changing quite a little bit there. But why do you think... What do you think has, has happened from your point of view um, that the English world, not only for language reasons, became so predominant in the occult development? And how can we how can we reintegrate the whole history into into that development again? Well, you know, there's a America. I, I suppose you could say the same about most nations is kind of schizophrenic mm. there's a part of our identity that is looking to draw from the past but there's also a kind of uh, insular isolationist we don't need anybody else mm-hmm. uh, you know Mexican culture Canadian culture all have specific uh, strong points that don't aren't really factored in you know, my Americans tend to look at Mexicans as immigrants, Canadians as those people in the north. <laughs> but you don't really you don't really see uh, people really exploring, mm. you know, that relationship. Mm. I mean, I grew up in a state that almost became part of Canada. If Ethan Allen, who was the uh, Green Mountain boy. Mm-hmm during the American Revolution, because Vermont was not one of the original colonies and New York was trying to take it over and the Green Mountain Boys were actually formed to chase out the New York realtors and bankers who were just trying to steal their land. Oh, really? They had a really uh, unique position in the American Revolution. Washington wanted them, but he didn't want to alienate New York. Yet all the... uh, military people in the Vermont militias had earned their, you know, become uh, warriors through fighting New York. All right. So there was a lot of bad blood there. And then on the other side of the state, New Hampshire uh, was also claiming Vermont as part of itself. And at one point, Ethan Allen, before the war was finally over, before Yorkshire, he had this idea of Vermont and Quebec could become their own country. Right, right. And it, it just, you know, 
didn't materialize, but it came very close. And the English were actually trying to push that in a way to uh, hobble the revolution. But right, right. Of course, Vermont, the name is is Green Mountain. Yes, sure. And yeah. French, yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. you know, in northern Vermont, there's quite a, a large number of uh, uh, people of French Quebec descent. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, well, at least um, now you, with with Inventions and others, help to bring that those works from not only the English speaking Europe, but from the rest of Europe, uh, which is is kind of also the, the the background of the tradition into the English speaking world. And that's a major, major achievement. And um, why do you think you mentioned that before that people are now? going more in-depth? What has happened? Does your audience widen, increase, or does it only go, your audience, I say, I mean, your clientele, your, your people, the people who buy books, or do they go, are they the same people who more and more go in-depth in what they are looking for? Uh, the second, I mean, it's the same with, say, something like yoga, where there are many introductory exercise books, so to speak, but then Our best-selling books in yoga are for people that have the basic knowledge already and are looking to improve their practice. I think what's happened is that people are no longer just looking at the occult as some sort of intellectual curiosity or uh, source of teen fantasy for uh, working your will. And, I mean, what I'm seeing And in my conversations with the cult authors and so on, is that this works, but it's a lot of work. Mm. And now you have people that believe that they can get something out of this practice if they really focus and concentrate on it. And right. the books that are coming out that are doing well are the ones that actually uh, present magic without fantasy, so to speak. Okay. You know, this is something you, you can do yeah, sure. if you really put your mind to it. And it's a, it's a way to uh, take the, to impose a kind of order on the chaos that contemporary society uh, turns our thoughts into. If you're just, okay. if you're just uh, uh, a receptive recipient Of, of the noise machine that never shuts off, just like the lights never go off at night. You're just going to feel confused and chaotic and bouncing along. That's occult philosophy offers people a kind of order, kind of system mm -hmm. that allows them to first recognize their own thought. I mean, how many people think what they think What they're thinking is theirs, but it's actually ready to think thought, just like ready to wear clothes that they just get from watching too many news programs yeah. with a single view. Yeah. And it just it just plays in your head like a tape loop, Absolutely. you know, to to, you know, it requires meditation and concentration and things like that to actually identify what you as an individual really think. Mm. And. The stuff, I mean, I, I've, I found that out years ago just because I realized I was, I was working in Virginia and I was uh, 
I would go by the uh, the electric company. And they always had uh, nuclear energy propaganda in their windows, and I would read it without thinking. And then all of a sudden, I realized I started was thinking in terms. Well, that sounds reasonable, and I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. That's not how I think about it at all. Where is this coming from? And I realized that if you do not screen, if you do not filter the constant flow of ideas that are being thrown at you, they'll overwhelm not only what you think, but who you think you are. But are you saying that um, this movement that people go deeper in their magical interest, let's call it like that, um, is because they have opened their mind or is it like a place for them where they can improve, learn, deepen their criticism towards the, the media world? The, um, what is the past? What, what, what comes first, so to speak? What, what? Well, I think you have to find that place within. I mean, for me, it's like you have... What I think in Norse uh, tradition you would call the woad self, mm -hmm, the deep mm -hmm. self. Yeah. And to me, surrealism was the same thing with psychic automatism where you would go within and remove those filters. So it's actually a kind of simultaneous action of going within and at the same time giving what's within greater weight than the preconceptions you're given from society, the uh, assumptions, yeah. and just to place your faith in what cups comes out of your depths yeah. and not write it off as, as uh, delusional or fantastic, but to, to look at it. Yeah. But it also requires a certain degree of, uh, of uh, hard work to learn how to concentrate, to learn how to Absolutely. meditate. Absolutely. But, but in your opinion, to reiterate that question, uh, uh, does it start by the doubt you have in, in the world? And that's why you go into um, spiritual or occult or whatever you want to call it studies? Or is it because you go deeper in there that you, that you realize something, there's something else that you have to observe? What, what comes first, in your opinion? Well, for me, it was... Well, I was doing the surrealist thing, and that just sort of was creating a kind of outlet yeah. for the kind of thought that I recognize as my, my voice. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I started to see things that I was finding out from within meshed very well with a number of occult notions, a number of... Uh, you know, and practices that would facilitate the process that I just sort of stumbled on by accident. Yeah. And it could also be shamanism, too, because that also was something sure. that I, I studied and also requires uh, the ability to, to refine your ability to imagine, mm -hmm. to visualize. So all of these things that go into training the mind. Yeah. That's all something that occult traditions promotes. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm completely with you on that. And uh, it's funny, we are, uh, by um, talking about publishing, we get into that because that's a subject that I, I always try to bring into this podcast, but it's always 
a bit hard to bring it in because, of course, then you talk about the book or about some some tradition or whatever, and uh, you never get to the core. And what you are saying to me is very much the core and also the reason uh, why I personally practice um, in 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 uh, ritual magic, ceremonial magic, or mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't even like to to narrow it down to that. It's a kind of uh, I'm rather eclectic in my own practice, but I do it for that very reason that you just mentioned. What's the name of that movie where, oh my God, they, they live or what is it? It's an old movie, the guy who sees suddenly on oh, the, with the on, glasses. Yes, with the glasses. When they live, is, I think. They live, exactly. And that's one of the, of the greatest movies in that respect that you were just mentioning. Yeah. I'm sure they live, if you haven't seen it, uh, friends and listeners out there, please go and uh, watch it because it's, it's, it's it become a bit lost, that movie, but it's, it's just as good as Matrix or whatever. It's, it's such yeah, an yeah. important movie yeah, in that respect. Um, but as, a, as an acquisition editor, um, how much of that... Um, Belief, how much of that, um, well, that's a tricky question, how much of that um, personal conviction that you just that you just uh, expressed, are you able to actually transpose into the result of your work? How much lee room is there for that? Well, you know, as working for a commercial publisher, right. I have to look at things also from a more financial bottom line. Sure. thing. So I'm always balancing things, but I'm also, you know, the publisher I work for also supports the more important esoteric books yeah. that we publish that don't make as much money. So, they so it's more them, like yeah. I have, it's like a dual criteria. There's some books that I think are really important and we should do them regardless of the financial things, but then I like keep an eye out for things that I think will sell well, but are not um, crucial. (laughs) Well, also, but they're not, they're not a joke. They're, they're, they've got, you know, their authors are serious, but you know, they've got, it's got more mainstream appeal than, I think I see what you mean. I was working at some point in my musical career for a classical music agency, and we had three or four really of the big stars. I mean, we had Carreras, and we uh, we had uh, before she died with that agency. They they had before my time Callas, and so really the big wow. names. Yeah. And but they had a very good policy with the money they made on them, which was easy to make because they had high fees, they were easy to sell, everything. They were able to use that money also, not just to make profit, but also to permit lesser known artists, a young artist to kick off, to start, to, to promote them in a different way. Is that what you, what you mean in the yes. publishing side here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's also, you know, as, as a publisher, I mean, there's the bottom line, but there's also a kind of... Uh, symbolic currency you know that the authors that you have who have a reputation or you know have earned some sort of stature Mm. in the publishing world they lend their that stature to new authors Mm -hmm. because as 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 they're as the publisher of those authors you're also conveying that the new people you're you're 
uh, publishing, you believe have the same kind of same. potential. Yeah. Potential, exactly. That's why you take them in the house with that name, right? Right. Yeah. Are you uh, just to clarify? I know Inner Traditions is working with uh, nine, I believe, nine brands, nine different. Uh, um, um, uh, yeah, labels. I don't. Yeah, I don't do all of them. I mean, uh, Finthorn is still uh, the okay. Sabina of Finthorn is still uh, taking care of those acquisitions. Okay. Uh, Earth Dancer is uh arwin is still taking care of those we have a sub imprint with richard grossinger who used to be the publisher of north yeah, atlantic yeah, and yeah, he just yeah. takes his you know his own mm -hmm. sacred planet sub imprint and that's like a yeah. uh, a more wide-ranging right. selection and say finthorn or right. earth dancer right um because what i what I personally, but that might be maybe just taste, and you please correct me if that is not true. Um, my taste, of course, goes more into into books, uh, uh, whatever the new coming occult Germany or or the the the, the, trans the Claude Legouté or those things which are really in the in the practice of the occult and the history of the occult. And I'm less interested in plant medicine and healing and stuff. But right. is there is there in your I have sometimes the impression that this, those other fields that I'm less interested personally, less interested in, are widening faster than the core of what I'm looking after. Is that an impression I have, or is that? No, that's that that's true. Actually, uh, the the plant books have a kind of uh, there's a lot of uh, occult plant books now. We've mm -hmm. published a few. But we're not the only ones. Uh, I'm not think, talking about Paul Sidier, of course. That was a great thing to to publish it in first time. I think in English. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Cult botany. That's that. Uh, I'm putting that apart. That's a. Uh, I mean, healing by plants and stuff. That that's a. I'm not making that down. Don't get me wrong. It's just, I just get yeah. the impression that's a lot of that around, right? Yeah, there is, and you know, and they sell well. Mm. We've done quite a few. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we have pretty our our editors are pretty rigorous, so they're really good at elevating the quality of whatever comes in. Mm -hmm. I mean, just you know, there are things. I mean, I've I recently wrote an article for this French uh, magazine, Cahier André Breton, mm -hmm. and. I was just doing a ton of research and I picked up this book by Dory Ashton on the New York School of Art. And it's, she's, you know, one of the top art historians of the United States, for especially for that period. Right. But she had some dates wrong. Hmm. You know, and I'm like, well, the editor didn't catch that or they just didn't, you know, they, they didn't give her the same... Uh, you know, care as they would have to a lesser known author. They just yeah. assumed she would yeah. know it. But yeah. you know, it wasn't it's not, you know, a, a dire mistake. But it's but just sort of the editor like, is there for as well, right? Right. Yeah, right. So our editors don't care who you are. They just they're really uh consistent and yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean things like that happen to 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 big names, right? So so we shouldn't be we shouldn't be. Uh, yeah, it's, it's normal. That's what, as I say, that, that's what yeah. the is here for. Um, uh, when you when you um, when you choose a work to be published, what is your main criteria? I mean, maybe that's hard to say because it might depend on the the overall thing, as you just clarified. But say you have ten books on your desk. What what will make you decide? Which one to go first? Is there any particular criteria that you that you prioritize that you are are the most important for you? Uh, yeah, that's a, a good question. There are some things. I mean, the first criteria is like when I read a manuscript and I find it's I just keep reading it without having to force myself. Yeah, that automatically. <laughs> yeah, but there are books that I find harder to 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 get into. Mm. So then I have to really like look at them more carefully and decide whether this book, if written in a with a better flow, would work better or not. Uh, but I can tell you there are a few authors that just send in a book and you just read it and I'm like, this is great, ready to go. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Jocelyn Godwin. I mean, it's like yeah, whatever he Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, also as a reader, certainly it's also personal taste some some or personal affection. Um uh, of course um, uh, when you read John Michael Greer, it's always an easy read, even if the task uh, behind it is very heavy, right? No, For I, I, I love his books. His... Uh, yeah, but but he's so he's so well versed also in all those things. Mm -hmm. But um how much does your personal experience, I mean, not the personal experience as an editor, uh, but as a practitioner maybe, or as, a, as, as a, somebody interested, personally interested in the occult, how much does that play into that choice? Because that, that can be positive, but it can also be um, a problem because you might, all, you might choose it all in one single direction. You have to avoid that probably as the acquisition right. editor. Of no, I have, since I have several different uh, imprints, mm -hmm. you know, because I have to, you know, I'm looking for books on healing, new age books, uh, right. other books that, you know, aren't particularly, I mean, I don't publish, I don't recommend things that I haven't found value in. Yeah. But, you know, there are things that I, some subjects are closer to my heart. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, I basically, through through surrealism, through my uh, occult work, I feel like I've developed greater confidence in my intuition mm -hmm. and how I how I read what's within. It's discernment rather than just reading. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I also look for you know on a more practical thing. It's like, is this is this a book that will ripen or wither on the vine? Yeah, because there's some books that are great, but you know that their moment is past. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I mean, I feel very much related to what you say in my former profession as an artistic director of an opera house, because um, it's often hard to express why you choose this or that work and or this or that artist. But it's 
20 years of experience and you get guts for it and and either you can do it or you can't <laughs> so right. i know it's hard to explain the secret but um uh, it's an artistic job basically what that you're doing right it's a, it's uh yeah it, it's an artistic yeah uh, it's an art artistic director arts director of a publisher. no absolutely it is it's 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 a, it's a sense of uh, i mean i I don't know. I stopped counting a long time ago. One year I counted and there was 10,000 submissions. Yeah. And I said, if I count them every year, I'll go mad. <laughs> so you might get a few more after this, after this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you, be aware of that. Quite a task. 10,000 manuscripts a year. To, of course, you cannot all read them. <laughs> We're aware of that, but to see which are the best ones, which do you want to publish and, well, quite a task and Jan, you're doing a great job, I believe. Um, well, it's time for some more music, as always, when we break here in the middle of the interview. Before we return to continue talking about occult publishing with our friend Jan Graham, um, yes, uh, we're going to hear percussion again. Percussion performed and produced by Bernd Dominiak and uh, the piece we are going to hear next here is called in German as I said he is German the piece is called Endlos Fliegen fly endlessly and um, then after Endlos Fliegen we are going to meet again with Jan and hear the second part of the interview on occult publishing and at the end of the tat talk it's musical piece number three and it's called Ausreden well that's what I told you in the beginning not quite sure how I should translate that not because I don't know the word it's two completely different possibilities of translation of translating that and one means Ausreden means to have a bad excuse you know and Ausrede is something that um, well, if, if you're late for an appointment, for example, you say, well, it was the bus driver who, who, who was late, and even if that's not true. Uh, so it's basically a kind of lie, right? That could be Ausreden, but also Ausreden could mean, well, let me finish my phrase. Ausreden, finishing a phrase, talk to the end, towards the end. So whatever you choose, whatever you feel when you hear that Short-ish piece, third piece of music after the interview. But before we go back to Endlos Fliegen, Fly Endlessly with Bernd Dominiak, then the second part of the interview with Jan Graham, and finally Bernd Dominiak's Ausreden to finish that part of the show. But of course, that is not the end. And I'm going to announce who will be our guest in episode 8. And at the end, of the, at the very end, after the last and third and last piece of music. So stay with me towards the end to learn what you will be able to hear next week and what you can enjoy next week. But for now, let's fly. Let's fly endlessly. Endlos fliegen with Bernd Dominiak. Thank you. 
let's play through two scenarios, if you if you may. Um, the first being you want to republish or translate for the first time or whatever, but a, a work by already well-known work, but that has not been published in English yet, like the ones you just mentioned, Papus or whatever. So um, how do you come to a choice? What's the procedure within yourself first and then within the company to get to choose such a work and then to get it out into the world? How, how does that just work? How, how would you explain that procedure? Well, that's an interesting uh question because there are things that I have been contemplating. Uh, there's uh, Le Promontoire de Sons by Victor Hugo, mm. The Promontory of Dream, which is his, you know, which is, I find very inspirational. And it was recently republished in French with a Forward by Annie Lebrun, whose work I admire. And right. Is that about spiritism? Is that his work on spiritism? Well, it's that, but it's also, it's more, it's more like the poetics of okay. anacultism. It's, okay. it's just yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Because and it, it also, it's, it's very much into that, and also spiritism and occultism, people don't know about that. They all know the, the, the jongleur de Notre Dame, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. No, no, this is, this, is, this is very different. Right. You know, Annie Lebrun uh, was inspired by this work to write her book. Uh, when he looked at the moon, and he said, it's if... If nothing had a shape, this would be it. When he right. went to Argo and looked at the moon for the first time through the telescope, right. so she named it. She had a book with that title. Uh -huh. If nothing had a shape, this is what it would look it like. Would like okay. <laughs> that's so that's you know. And then uh, Gallimard said, "Would would you write a forward if we were to republish this? Right. Right. You know, lesser known work of Hugo." And she said, "Of course." Yeah. So I'm like, this this could be good. I mean, everybody, uh, I mean, Hugo is known for, you know, Notre Dame and Les Mis, exactly. which is a huge uh, musical here. Absolutely, yeah. So it would be interesting to see if that kind of people would like, oh, Victor Hugo, and then no Cosette, no Quasimodo. Exactly. <laughs> Just, no, and, and I mean, I don't think many people even here in Europe or in France, know about those writings by him. He, he, that's very, very rare that people know about that. So, so you would choose rather such a work, such a work like, like um, an occult occult work, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or, well, that's what I look for. It's, I yeah. mean, if I, if I was fluent in German, there are a lot of romantic authors yeah. I like only from reading them in French. Yeah. But they've never been translated into English, apart from Novalis. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Or what about very, my, uh, very much later, but Meiring, has he been translated into? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes, Daedalus uh, Publishers did all his okay. major works when you, you know, right. in a few years, and right. I snapped them right up. I mean, that was, I would have, if, if they were still not available, I would have been. 
I'm pushing sure, for that. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah Myrink is, is great. We, I want to do a show about Myrink uh, here. So if anybody out there is listening to this and is a specialist on the occult side of Myrink, do let yourself, make yourself known. I'll have you on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, okay. And is it easy for you to push such an idea through to, to make it happen? Um, or I'm still with the old the old guys, right? The, 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 the dead authors, right? Uh, um, who have made their way, but who are not known maybe in that particular field. Um, is that an easy, easier task for you than to work with a new author? Or is it the same? Or how does it, how is it different between the two? Uh, it's, it depends. I mean, the marketing people will say, well, there's no platform right. <laughs> anymore. Right. You know, we don't, it's easier if you have an author that can, can you sign know, copies. be interviewed and <laughs> can sign copies and, you know, promote the book. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, my view is that people that like me are into this material, are hungry to get the older stuff. We, it's There's always this idea of going back to the source and finding it. Right. I mean, that's, you know, we're, you know, I hate to say the word condemn, but eclectic magic is all we can do. There's no way for, say, if you're into uh, Celtic or Norse practice, you're going to be making half of it up. The contemporary Druid is... A totally different kind of being than a druid was in a functioning Celtic society Absolutely. where they had social standing. They were the lawmakers. Yeah. So there's a context that you have to create. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the important thing is to just, I mean, uh, uh, comparative mythology, archaeology, all of these things can help fill in some of the gaps. But when all said and done, you really don't know what the intentions were of the practitioners of magic, especially in pre-Christian societies. Right. Um, would you, would you, for example, well, say um, I give the example that I had recently on this show. Um, uh, the the Russian authors of the 1910s, 1920s, Mebes and 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 you maybe you heard that the, 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 uh, that they had been published for the first time in English. Um, just take that as an example. I, I for me this was a great discovery and a great a great thing. I had, hadn't known about them at all. Um, would something like that, something similar, would that be something that you think would also work with a big company like yours, or is that something that has to be left to the uh, to the to the the independents because they are more flexible on that, or how would you see that? Uh, it depends. Uh, I mean, it's really a case by case scenario here. I have to. What I do is I present something I find to my colleagues and the publisher, and then the publisher makes the final decision, but I have to persuade them that this is a book that will at least make its own way. Right. Not be a complete disaster. Right. Financially, or whatever. Sure. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So, of course, the financial side always it has to play. I, I'm not blaming that. I mean, those people who do the work have to be paid, and it has to pay for itself. So it cannot be cannot be left aside. But of course, um, I can see that this is a problem again. Very much like my job when I was a testing director of opera houses, you couldn't just do contemporary work every day; otherwise, you would shut down within three months, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now let's play the other case that I stated first: um, the discovery of a of a new author, of a young or not so young, but of a, somebody who who you discover because by a submission or you've heard about or whatever. So. How is that for you as the acquisition editor? How how does that work? How how exciting is that? How do you choose? How do you select? How how does it happen? Uh, well, one of my f- favorite new authors is Marlena Seven Bremner. Well, thank you for that. Mine too. <laughs> She's great. I mean, yeah. her. I mean, I actually uh, met her. That. Uh, the Esoteric Book Conference in Seattle some years ago when okay. it was still going on. And then I think I saw her at the Mortlake uh, Colloquium, which replaced it. And they haven't started. I don't know if they're going to resume or not. They stopped at the COVID thing and mm. they haven't resumed. But for me, I was going to these uh, small occult conventions and things were really, it was great to just yeah. talk with people and see what, so, so what you, was don't, coming you don't up. just sit there in your office and wait the submissions come in. You have to go out and no. And, and she asked me. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. gave me a little description of her book, and I said, "Oh, it definitely sounds mm-hmm. worth doing." Please, mm-hmm. and then I said, "If you have any questions, you're free to contact me anytime." And then she sent me in something to look at, and I'm like, "This is great. Can yeah. we publish it?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I. Pitched it. And well, I, think- I remember uh, our 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 audience will think that we that we have premeditated all of this. But I remember when I got Marlene's first book, and uh, and uh, um, then I wrote to you and said, "Well, thanks for this because this is really great." And you said, "Well, yeah." So we we immediately connected on that, and I was fascinated too. And actually, she will be back in I think it's in three weeks on the show. Oh, great! Uh, so here, so we will have. We talk about her second book and other stuff, so that will be will be fun. So, okay, sorry, but I interrupted you. So, how, how from there? How does it how does it continue? Well, from the book fair. I mean, for for me, it's important to find new authors. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, Kobe Michaels who does the Poison Path mm-hmm. uh, Herbalism, and he's got a new book. Uh, the Hoodoo Tarot author, Tyana mm-hmm. McKellar. Um, you know, there's people that come in or I have a connection with somebody, like Mitch Horowitz has directed a few people yeah. to us. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a sort of feeling, right? Personal feeling? Yeah, if, 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 I, if I see the, the spark there, the fire, mm. Then I want to make it. I want to. Yeah, yeah. And how often bring it has, to life? How often does that happen? <sighs> Sometimes there'll be a month or two without it, and then you'll get like ten right. bonfires in a row. 
right. but you know, it's like, <laughs> and what do you do then? <laughs> yeah, I'm just trying. Choose? Well, then I just have to like focus yeah. and yeah, yeah. Well, it's the same in the podcast. Sometimes you don't know how to bring all in in a row, and and then sometimes it's a bit more difficult. <gasps> that that's that. I think that's creative life is like that. Um, so let's talk a bit about about the market more in general, because I think you certainly also have views on that. And I'm not talking about inner traditions alone here. I'm talking about the market, the book market, the occult book market in general. How maybe the first question I have there, how does the occult book market compare to the general book market? I mean, uh, is the same movement that the uh, it's going well, that it's going more in, in that's expanding, basically, as you said in the beginning of this talk. Is that true for the book market in general or is that particular to our field here? I tend to feel it's our field has a lot more growth in it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of uh, uh, what I call karaoke publishing going on where <laughs> people are trying to capitalize on something that a, a big hit. Yeah. And they just keep finding people that will, you know, yeah. you know, like when the Harry Potter books were a big hit, all of a yeah. sudden, all of these other authors were given a chance yeah. to write books, basically to keep the Harry Potter readers busy until the next one came out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what about all those, um, how do you call them? It's not inst um um, the TikTok publishing people—that's um, that's a new trend, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not really familiar with it, but I have fairly strong, maybe people would call them elitist views about it. But I have a thing about how social media right. actually works against the kind of um, mind practice, mental practices you need to read. Yeah, that it actually it. It keeps you pinned to the surface and it yeah. doesn't allow you to dive deep. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm, I can be easily distracted. So I tend to stay away so that I can just focus on what needs to be focused on. Right, right. Right, right. Um, but of course, that's nothing to do with so-called publishing now. It was just meandering out there a little bit. Okay, so you have, uh, and then we have something that. I'm sure you have uh, clear opinions on. We have a phenomenon, as I see it for, as a user and an interested person, um, this number of independent publishers and within them you have quite a number who are doing not the cheapish e-books or, or, or print-on-demand stuff, but really the high-level um creative and object books you know that they're really very very special even with particular extra editions they do we are that are really expensive oh yeah so, those are yeah the scarlet imprint uh, david yeah exactly uh, you, you you name them and what's that phenomenon what how do you how do you see that why why is that even happening you wouldn't be able to sell uh, novels in, in, in special editions that cost 20% more. Why is it possible in the occult book world? Well, I think that has to do with, I mean, having sold books at a number of occult conferences, uh, 
a lot of people that are drawn to this world really don't like paperbacks. <laughs> they want right. Right. really nice editions that will last. And don't like ebooks. I know one. He's no, like, no, I don't like ebooks here. either. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I right. was a curmudgeon about those when they first started pushing them. Right, 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 right. Uh, okay, and, and so, so is this, why is this object-oriented um, publishing? I mean, why do, do, do occultists like that? What, what's so special about them? I think it's uh, something that certain readers feel the presentation is actually equal to the material contained inside that it's a it's almost like a grimoire tradition where you have to like uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, you know it's like yeah, if you yeah. have an altar and you're giving the spirits rot gut or you're giving them top shelf liquor right you be better results with the top shelf Now, now I'm getting into occult thinking a bit, but to me, what what I find, um, no, I don't want to call it strange because it it's lovely. I mean, I, I love those book objects; they're great, they look great, and I admire what the work that's been done. And it's artistic work behind it, and that's really, really great. But what I mean, on the other hand, it's strange because um, as a as a spiritual worker, you try to detach yourself from. From, from matter, right? Uh, and so this is a bit of a contradiction to me why it happens. Do you have an explanation? Mm, no, I mean, a lot of my reading in this is I just need to soak up the ideas. So yeah. I'm not insistent on getting something, but every now and then I see an author who I like Mm -hmm. And I will spend a little more for not the, you know, the most luxurious right. edition on, you know, tan black goat skin with sigils, but, you know, a nice hardback because I'll know I'll be using the book. I'll be looking at the book more often. Right. And I think about the most recent was a book by Shani Oates, mm -hmm. yeah. Anathema, and Anathema. it's on the search for Odin, which is like a mind-blowing book. It's basically... Mm -hmm. Odin, the evidence for Odin as a figure in uh, the earliest Germanic uh, religious traditions isn't right. there, that right. Odin is a sort of a conflated figure of uh, take it, combining ancestor, the, uh, the uh, records of ancestral worship throughout Europe, Northern right. Europe. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's very thought-provoking. It's the kind of book I like. I disagree. And then I'm like, well, she's making a really good argument here. I was like, so, you know, I'm it, it, it your mind. mind. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if Jan Graham were free to create his own edition line without any commercial background needs or whatever, If you could dream, right, for 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 a moment, um, what what would be, say, the five books 
book topics or whatever you want to say old books new books new authors not the authors but the subjects but it's it, the choice is yours what only would five next well ten if you want uh, we have time uh, what would be the next the books that would would come out within the, the next year or so Well, I'd probably want to do a translation of uh, Voyage en Kaleidoscope, which was a, uh, a French woman wrote as a kind of Dadaist uh, novel. But it's actually what she did was take your traditional alchemical work, medieval alchemical work, and transpose it into a modern milieu. Right. And it had a great influence on a number of people, not just uh, the Surrealist, but uh, uh, Eugène Cancelier, a lot of the Surrealists that were operative alchemists like uh, Jorge Camacho, Guy Rene Dumarou, Elisabeth Flamand. I mean, there's like, it's a, it's a, you know, something nobody knows about. You can find, but They do know, some people know about it because you can't pick up a copy for under $2,000. But <laughs> there is a small French press, Edition Alia, that yeah. does, and they're going to bring it out. Another soon. independent publisher. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do these little chapbooks of, you know, forgotten but important books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <sighs> so do you know Edition La Tarente in France, for example? They, they, mm, have to, they, they have the whole Arche Milano catalog in French. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. We talked about that the last time. Yeah, I think we did, yes. But it's yeah. it's always in my mind because they they talking about rare books and that go really deep inside. So we talked about that. that, that that's really, if you speak French or Italian, that, mm -hmm. that's, that's really an, an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Okay, what what other titles? Dadaists, right? You, you, that's also your background, your personal background, right? What right. Else? So that's you know, there's there's a well, it's too late for me to do it because another publisher, a small independent publisher, is doing it. But L'Art Magique okay. by André Breton. Ah, yeah, right. sure, sure, sure. So is that coming that, out in, in English now? It's going to be uh, sometime next year. Right. Right. Great. And I'm really, I'm glad it is because I don't have an independent publisher that under right, my right, 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 right jurisdiction. So, but that's one I definitely would have done. Uh, I mean, I would translate Perspective Cavalier, which is Breton's last book, mm -hmm. collection of articles and whatnot. Uh, nothing by Papoose is really yeah. been translated except for his book on Tarot. Yes. He's got and major books. I think, if I may say, hope no, nobody going to be mad at me. I don't think it's a very good translation, to be honest. Um, and yeah, and, and Papu is, is, you can see it in those Russian books that I, that I mentioned before, not Russian books, I mean the Russian authors, uh, maybe mm -hmm. some company, how much Papu has been influencing the occult world far beyond France. And, and uh, that, that's, that's something really important. Um, and any subjects apart from authors and uh, any subjects that you feel, that I, you have mentioned that, but that you feel underrated and should be more 
put in the focus within the occult world and the occult publishing world? Well, I mean, since I, my education is really out of surrealism, mm. there are always a lot of surrealist works, right. including things by uh, newer authors. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the uh, contemporary art historian view is that surrealism ended now in the 70s with the Chicago mm -hmm. Surrealist Group and Ted Jones and some, you know, contemporary movements around that time. But there are still many people who are working uh, as serious surrealists. There's a group in Leeds whose work I admire quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, the Czech group has been in existence since uh, uh, the 30s. And even, you know, it survived the uh, communist interregnum and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. after the Velvet Revolution began publishing its journal Analogon, which is about to release its 100th issue. Right. And you know, Jan Funkmeyer. And there's a lot of uh, Martin Steiskel. I would have to find a great Czech translator, but he's written several books on mm -hmm. alchemy that I th think would be great. I've, mm -hmm. I would definitely explore that. Uh, I mean, I have found quite a few books here that I would have taken, you know, yeah. that are totally... And that were not possible for commercial time reasons and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, but, yeah. you know, I'd go through my list and see. Yeah. You know, as a translator, I began by translating uh, articles out of French into English on, you know, surrealist texts mm -hmm. because nothing was available then except for a few mm -hmm. major tests like the Manifestos, uh, Resmont's book on collected works of Breton. So I used to translate all this stuff that has since been translated and published by other people. Right, right. But I used to just do it and, you know, send it to people. So we have yeah. some, a deeper basis on which to talk about yeah. these subjects. Yeah, yeah. Do you have an idea? I'm not talking about the wish yet. I'm talking about the idea so far. Um, where the occult publishing world will be moving. Well, let, let me ask you something else first, uh, because that may be, may be related, uh, but it, it has to come first. In, in what respect has the COVID period um, influenced occult publishing? Um, has the fact that people have been able have been able, my God, had had to stay at home um, and, and maybe are now more also in home office that they used to be before 2020 and all that. Has that changed the way um, books are being sold, the kind of books that are being sold, the number of books that are being sold, especially in, in occult publishing? Is there a trend that can be seen? Well, when the pandemic was still at its height, uh, our sales were just, mm -hmm. you know, through the roof. Right. And then once the lockdowns ended, uh, sales of our books came down. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think our sales declined anywhere near as precipitously as for other publishers mm -hmm. or certain other publishers, but they certainly um, 
were less the first year after, but then they started going back up. Right. And I just, I, my personal take, and just not just not for a cult books, but for books in general, is that a lot of people rediscovered the value of reading books right. during that time. Right. And now that they've done it, they can't just go back and be satisfied with a kind of uh, personality you see on, uh, you know, the social media, that kind of thing. So taking it from there and the experience that you made during the COVID uh, period, um, can you maybe extrapolate how the future will look? Will it continue to be, to be, to go along in the same direction, to, to build more and more an audience for books and for occult books in particular again? Or do you see other trends? Where do you think occult publishing is moving within the next 10 years or so? Well, my feeling is that it's going to continue to, to blossom. There's a lot that has been seeded over the last few years. And people are take, are investing a lot more of themselves mm -hmm. into what they're putting out. But it's also, there's a greater sense, for me anyway, of readers looking for things that transform the relationship they have with a spiritual or occult being is to one where they're looking to empower themselves through this. And I don't, I don't see that that's going away. Mm -hmm. I think the autocratic model that we've been presented with and is still present and trying to cling to power mm -hmm. is fading. Right. And I think in the next few years, uh, the people that give that agency are frankly just not going to be in a position to do that anymore. Right. Right, right. Interesting, interesting. Maybe you should, we should consecrate the last few minutes of our talk here today on something I'd almost would like to call um, occult activism, because <laughs> when I when I hear your talk and I remember the beginning of our talk when we when you said what it means to to read and practice and why you do it and how it transforms you and all of that. And that's a lot of spiritual alchemy behind there. But um, of course, and now you're saying that again um, with the transformation through the COVID period and what how the how has the market changed through that, etc., etc. Um, in what way? Can occult personal work transform the world? Um, and in what way do you think should it more transform the world? What's its what's its aim? What its what its um, yeah its aim? Uh, why do we buy those books? Why do we read those books? What for? Not just for making you happy as an as a, as a publishing house, but there must be some bigger reason behind well, that. No, that's a that's an excellent question. the The way I see it is that all of these things, and it's most visible in alchemy, where the transformation mm. is supposed to be turning lead into gold, but the actual transformation is within. Right. And part of that transformation, if you were uh, to use a a Norse 
metaphor, if you're transforming your murk staves into gold staves, you're making yourself a better person. You're making yourself someone that will contribute to the world in which they live rather than just look at it for what's in it for them. Mm. I mean, to me, and that's, uh, if you look at Flamel, I mean, his, his, uh, his, what he's remembered for outside of alchemy is his charitable work. Yeah. You know, the Saint-Jacques, la Boucherie, all of that. Mm. He was, you know, basically providing a kind of, uh, uh, empowered living situation in a, in a fiercely divided society for the people that were left out. Right. You know, right. and I think that part of understanding yourself has to be, is developed through, through how you interact with the world around you. Right. And, you know, the, the, the fruits of selfishness, gaslighting, when it's just, you know, everything is just for the ego, I think that has a reductive effect on who you are as a person. So if you work on expanding your awareness, which is what these practices do, that translates into greater understanding of the people in your life and people you don't even know. Mm. It's just, it's just, uh, you get a sense of balance and maybe compassion, but it's, 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 but it's not, uh, unicorn fantasy compassion, but it's understanding that, you know, you cannot, you just you look for you you understand people's weaknesses and don't write them off for it well that that's a very important phrase right don't write them off for it because that that's balances between excusing everybody for anything <laughs> which is to me the wrong path because because you do not you do not accept weakness in that way. You, you, right. you deny it and uh, you have to accept it in order to help it. Uh, and I think that that's, that's one of the major differences between some, some new age tendencies that I see and something that I would call a truly hermetic view or, or uh, mm -hmm. a, a, a view, a holistic view uh, of, of life. Absolutely. Um, as we are in the very personal stuff here, uh, Jan, um, what are your personal next projects, be it with the book market, be it for yourself, um, it, but of course related to our topics here today, what, what, is, what is the next few important things that you have on your tablets and would like to share with us? Well... <clears throat> I'm working on a text now. I've been working on it for some time. It's taken much longer than I thought because I kept falling down different rabbit holes as I researched it, which would force me to do more research. Mm -hmm. But it has to do with, say, 
the surreal the, the surrealist voice finding the surrealist voice and Odin finding the runes. Okay. You know, there's a kind of inversion that needs to be uh, performed. Interesting. You, know, you see the relation between the two because I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's like this. I mean, in the Havamal, he says, "Sacrifice to Odin, myself to myself," and to me, the myself to myself is exactly what the surrealist has to do mm. when they uh, go within to explore the psychic realm that's made available through automatistic practices. Yeah. We have spoken a lot about surrealism here today, um, of course. Um, would you be able to give our listeners, uh, not now, but send me a list of maybe three or four books um, that if they're interested in surrealism and its relationship to occultism, that that I could put on the show notes and that that they could then find and and read to to oh, yeah. to educate themselves. Yeah. Well, we do publish the Esoteric Secrets of Surrealism, which is a book I translated some years ago. All right. So and I can add, I can put that on the list and I'll think yes, of some sure. others. Yes, please, please do. Before I let you go, you're going to be, well, I, th I think it will open a week from now, when now being the day that we release this interview, um, um, we, you will be going to the Frankfurt Book Fair, right? Right. So how is it to go as an occult publisher to that huge fair of where, I think it's a, one of the biggest uh, book fairs in the world. Uh, it is. Everybody it's, goes and... and mm -hmm. Do you are you a real niche there and nobody knows about you, or has this also become more important over the last few years? Uh, we've always done fairly well there. Uh, not so much our occult books, but health books. Mm. I mean, there's it's across the board. There's certain books that we've had great success selling rights for. Mm -hmm. When I go, I go and explore and look for books that I'm interested in. Sure. And also just to get, it, it just lets you know, it's, it's sort of like the Frankfurt Book Fair is creating a kind of uh, simulacrum of the world mind. Right. So you can just sort of see where, what, what people in Croatia, what people in Iran, right. people right. in England, all this you get a, a, a snapshot of where people are right. thinking and what they're thinking. And Interesting. It's all so, very, you know, it, yeah, sounds, sounds exciting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very good. Well, Jan, thank you very much for your time here today. I thought it was fascinating. It was something completely different uh, on, on this podcast for once in a while. Yeah. And no, still re related to everything we do here. Thank exactly. you. Also, thank, thank you, you for having me. Of course, and thank you for your work you do uh, in by selecting great, also new um, authors and, and bring them to our knowledge. Thank you for that. And um, well, good luck with the Frankfurt Book Fair and all the other work that you're preparing. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you. And bye for now. Bye for now, definitely. Hope to talk to you again. Absolutely. Thank you.
Ausreden, a third and last percussion piece performed and produced by Bernd Dominiak and I think our friend and listener and fan of the show who sent me those three pieces of music. Thank you for that. It was a great idea. I'm always happy when people send me music, so please do that if you have ideas. Of course, if you know that the rights can be owned and if it's your own, own music, even better. And I'm very happy to say also that uh, that little piece with it in the interview with, uh, in the middle of the interview with Thomas Meyer, the piece with Emerel, that young Austrian singer, artist and performer, uh, had a very, very great feedback. And we are soon in three or four shows from here. We're going to do another talk on music and the effects of music on our brains on the in in the occult sense how we can use music to uh, change states of consciousness for example etc etc so this is coming as a little series as i told you back then very soon right well that was today's show and i want to thank uh, jon graham for being with us here today for a lovely interview and a highly interesting insight into occult publishing was great to have you jon and uh, it was great to have you all here on the show as my listeners here today. I hope you will return next week because next week we have somebody else who who was here on the trio show about two or three years ago. Uh, trio, you know those shows when with a co-host I invite somebody that we both would like to interview. And well, anyway, next week it'll be but in a solo, not, not in a trio, but in a, just an ordinary interview. Um, it will be Charles R. Dunning, or Chuck Dunning, as people know him, on his book Rosecroix Oratory. And Rosecroix, of course, is a Masonic term for Rosicrucianism, a certain kind of Rosicrucianism in the Scottish Rite degrees, but the book here uh, that goes much beyond that. It's on Hermeticism, on Rosicrucianism, on Masonry, of course, and especially on the practice of it. It's not about theory, it's on the practice of, um, well, that's why it's called the Rosecroix Oratory as well. And as my friend Samuel Robinson in his um, text on the back page of, the, of that book writes, um, a Rosecroix Oratory is the reward of one who has undertaken that journey for himself and opens the way for others to follow. And that is the important part on that book. So please come back next week to listen to Chuck Dunning and myself, yours truly, talking about that book, but of course on especially the subject that that books talk about. Right. Well, it was it for this week. Thanks for listening once again. Thanks for maybe considering after this show to become a Patreon member. Would be lovely. And, uh, well, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.